0: Good morning, my name is Judge Patrick Brumette of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Before beginning, I want to say what an honor it is to be moderating this panel. I've been coming to these conventions for almost 20 years and this is the first time I've gotten to moderate a panel in person, so I'm thankful for this opportunity. And we have a great panel too. The panel is called The Legal Profession and Constitutional Culture. When I think about this topic, I think of the amazing example set by John Adams. No one would question John Adams's patriotism or dedication to the rights of American colonists. But after British soldiers killed three Bostonians in what's known as the Boston Massacre in 1770, John Adams made the difficult decision to represent those soldiers. No other lawyer would represent the captain of the British soldiers except for John Adams and a more junior attorney. Adams proceeded to win an acquittal for the captain and several other soldiers. It is during this famous case that Adams said, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of the facts and evidence. So now I'll introduce our panelists. Our first speaker will be Professor Jameel Green of Columbia Law School. His most recent book is entitled How Rights Went Wrong why our obsession with rights is tearing America apart. And before law school, he served as a baseball reporter for Sports Illustrated. Next we'll have Professor John McGinnis of the Northwestern University School of Law. Professor McGinnis is well known to us on the Federalist Society. His areas of expertise include constitutional law, originalism in practice, and international law, and technology law. We'll then have Professor Tara Lee Grove of the University University of Texas School of Law. In addition to several years as an appellate attorney at the Department of Justice, Professor Grove has focused on the study of the federal judiciary and the separation of powers. She recently served on the President's Commission on the Supreme Court. Lastly, we'll have Ashley Keller. Ashley is one of the founding partners of Keller Postman where he handles a wide variety of trial and appellate matters. Ashley graduated first in his class from the University of Chicago Law School and I believe you just argued a case before the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Well, I'm glad you survived. <laughs> to start off, each panelist will now give an opening statement. Professor Green, can you start us off?
1: So I'm, I'm going to, uh, to sit here. I, I think that's okay, right? Um, so thank you all. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I've interpreted this as a panel about uh, how lawyers in the United States should understand their role within the constitutional culture. Uh, And this is, uh, I think, an important topic for today, uh, not least because uh, I can faithfully report that constitutionalism in the United States, especially as practiced by judges, uh, faces at this moment uh, a, a serious threat to its legitimacy. And as uh, privileged members uh, of uh, and adjuncts to the very institutions that are under threat, uh, and indeed as so-called officers of the court, as lawyers are often uh, called, lawyers are custodians of the law's uh, legitimacy. And to that degree, we are ourselves uh, under threat uh, in this moment. Whether or not we think that threat to legitimacy is justified It is there, uh, and we uh, must account for it. So what I want to talk about is what our posture towards that threat uh, should be. Now, this is not just an important question for this moment, but an important question for this particular room uh, and for the people uh, within it. Uh, As you all know, the legitimacy threat is bound up with the view uh, held by many, Judge Pryor talked about some of those people, (laughs) Uh, that courts, and especially the Supreme Court, are not just political institutions, but are, in fact, partisan political institutions. Uh, And this uh, uh, convention is the premier national gathering of politically identifiable lawyers, uh, many of whom benefit from the court's posture. Uh, I want to suggest that how you respond uh, to this moment is of surpassing importance to our democratic future. Now first, let me not be misunderstood. Uh, I am mindful that among the very first speakers uh, at this convention is me. Uh, I think that the invitation to people like me to speak to groups like yours uh, is a quite laudable and I think highly relevant to the topic of, of this panel. Uh, but I also want to suggest that the obligation of lawyers and especially the kinds of lawyers who gather every November here at the Mayflower uh, it goes beyond listening to people like me talk at uh, the convention Uh, and I want to use my remaining time uh, to say a bit more about what I think that obligation looks like Uh, we are and for the foreseeable future are likely to remain in a period of conservative ascendancy uh, on the Supreme Court Uh, much of the court's output Um, Much of its case selection practices, its methods, and its tone have been characterized by what I perceive as a distinct lack of humility. As lawyers, uh, many of whom are no doubt pleased by the outcomes in these cases, I want to encourage you all to embrace uh, humility as a general attitude, uh, as a way of being about constitutional law. And I'll note that I would say the same thing uh, to the American Constitution Society if there were a progressive ascendancy uh, on the Supreme Court. And and you can hold me to that if that happens in my lifetime. Uh, Now, why is it so urgent uh, to embrace humility in constitutional law as lawyers in this moment? I'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning uh, here, uh, which is that uh, I'm going to say some uncomfortable things about the US Constitution. We often speak about the Constitution as if it represents, uh, in its original design, a a powerful commitment of the will of the American people. Um, This is, uh, at best, a fiction and, at worst, a lie. The Constitution was drafted by people who did not allow women to participate in electoral politics, who permitted and, at times, practiced human slavery, and who, by and large, conditioned the vote on property holding. The Constitution was ratified, as you know, in a very close vote, by members um, who were selected under similarly discriminatory conditions. To say that a document that uh, such openly exclusionary bodies drafted and ratified represents ipso facto the will of the people is not just wrong, but is quite frankly offensive. Now, of course, the Constitution has provisions that were drafted after 1787 uh, but other significant moments of constitutional design betray similar problems. The 14th Amendment was drafted by a Congress of exclusively white men, Uh, women, again, could not participate in electoral politics. Most states at the time, including in the North and the West, did not permit blacks to vote on equal terms with whites. It may well be that the language of the 14th Amendment and and indeed uh, the language of original constitutional provisions as well represented a genuine commitment of we the people. But the process through which those provisions made their way into the Constitution can't give us much confidence that that's right. I recount this history uh, not to take shots at the founders uh, or the framers, many of whom had attitudes about republicanism that were ahead of their time. Uh, I recount this history rather to suggest that the reverence that we Americans owe to the Constitution today cannot rest on its status as an exercise of popular sovereignty. It was not such an exercise, unless we think those acts of mass exclusion were justified. And as you can imagine, for someone who looks like me, uh, the claim that the Constitution represents some high democratic commitment under those exclusionary conditions is especially alienating. The Constitution was a document drafted and and supported by a distinct minority of the population. Given that, the authority and legitimacy of the Constitution as written needs to be actively argued and defended, not just assumed. The substance of that defense is far from obvious. Uh, Constitutional law debates, and here's the point, Uh, are not then debates between those who honor the deep commitments of the American people embodied in the Constitution versus those who don't. Rather, they're debates about what the deep commitments of the American people actually are. Who or what speaks for America? The question is hard, and it's hard because genuine, actual, diverse majorities of Americans have never codified the answer to that question. It doesn't mean that we don't have deep commitments, right? But we the people have never written them down in a constitution. Now, there are many answers that are offered to the question of who or what speaks for us that look very different from the 18th century framers speak for us and look very different from the 39th Congress speaks for us. Some believe that it's important for adjudicators to account for so-called evolving moral values when they reach decisions. Some people believe that the standing uh, legal and political precedent supported by consistent national majorities or public opinion should carry significant weight in constitutional adjudication. Some people maintain that ordinary statutes, especially federal statutes, which require broad and diverse constituencies to pass, should receive very significant or even absolute deference from courts These kinds of claims are not attempts to subvert the true Constitution. They are claims about who or what actually speaks for us. They're they're claims about what we as Americans and what we the people have actually committed ourselves to in a deep sense. So what's the answer? Um, If the written Constitution doesn't speak for us, then who does? Well, the hard answer is that we can't say with certainty. And indeed, there may not be a single answer to that question. Again, we've never quite written it down. It's precisely for that reason that judges who call, uh, who find themselves uh, called upon to answer momentous political questions by resorting to the prior commitments of the American people that are said to be embodied in the Constitution should go about their task in ways that reflect a deep humility about their role within our democracy. We, as lawyers, should support and cultivate that same kind of posture. Uh, I've written a book uh, called How Rights Went Wrong uh, that's intended to offer a roadmap uh, for that exercise of humility uh, and for recognition of our pluralism. Uh, Unsurprisingly, I recommend it to you all. (laughs) Uh, The book uh, calls for broad recognition of diverse sources of value, and at the same time, deep attention to the importance of collective governance, which requires negotiation, which requires compromise among people who hold very different visions of the good. If the book has a single message, it is that pluralism is the core value of American constitutionalism in 2022. As such, there is nothing more important to our democratic future than each of us not being too sure that we're right. We need to build that kind of ethos and that kind of spirit into our legal institutions if they are to survive. So if you take nothing else from uh, these remarks, take the plea not to spike the football. Constitutional law is not a game. And indeed, to paraphrase the late Justice Scalia, we are just one team here. It is America. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Professor Green. Professor McGuinness?
2: Uh, so, thank you. Uh- Many thinkers at the founding uh, believed that a particular kind of legal culture was necessary to a constitutional republic. Central to this culture were tough-minded, formalist lawyers who would buck the popular passions to preserve an enduring constitution. But over time, lawyers have become less attached to formal interpretation, I think because of changes in the profession, and that transformation makes the Constitutional order harder to maintain. It's thus critical for some substantial element of the legal profession to restore that aspect of our constitutional culture. In Democracy in America, uh, still the best book, I think, both about democracy and about America, (laughs) Alexis de Tocqueville admired the American experiment, but he foresaw danger democracy could turn excessively populist as demagogues successfully appealed to the ill-considered whims of an excitable populace, upending the Constitution. Democratic mutability would thereby endanger Republican stability. Lawyers were an important bulwark, perhaps the important bulwark, against such dangers. According to Tocqueville, The importance of law in a republic made lawyers peculiarly powerful in America. When the nobility is excluded from government, lawyers become the most effective governing class, he thought. Tocqueville further believed that the nature of their profession makes lawyers power a beneficent force. Their devotion to law gives them an inclination to resist popular passions. The formal structure of law encourages an abiding suspicion of the distortions that would disturb it. Tocqueville, above all, praised the character disposition that comes naturally from studying law. He said, men who have made a special study of the laws derive from this occupation certain habits of order, a taste for formalities, and a kind of instinctive regard for the regular connection of ideas, which naturally render them very hostile to the revolutionary spirit, and the unreflecting passions of the multitude. Tocqueville was not so naive as to assume that every attorney had such qualities. He also recognized that lawyers are prominent in every kind of political movement, including revolutionary ones. But respect for traditional forms and resistance to popular forms are important general tendencies. As Gordon Wood uh, shows in his superb book, Power and Liberty, The formal tendencies and dispassionate attitudes of lawyers were a reason that the judiciary was entrusted with constitutional review. It's easy to understand the connection. Devotion to formality meant protecting, uh, meant that those charged with interpreting the Constitution would protect its meaning through time. That approach maintains both the large areas for democratic choice permitted by the Constitution and the restraints on the form and scope for the choice, which the Constitution also imposes. And sustaining the formal constitutional order also directs popular me- momentum for constitutional change into the carefully deliberate process of Article 5. The dispassion allowed lawyers to take up also any cases that were backed by plausible legal arguments, even if they were unpopular as Judge Boutamé's example of, 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 of John Adams shows. In Federalist 78, the famous essay defending judicial review, Alexander Hamilton, a lawyer who also defended unpopular loyalists after the revolution, emphasized the sound judgment and acumen of lawyers who would become judges. In response to claims the judiciary would undermine the original plan of the constitution, Hamilton conceded the judicial review would serve the Republic only if it had learned lawyers who would be bound by strict rules. This confidence, I think, was borne out in the early Republic. Judiciary resisted the most populist uh, tendencies of the Democratic Republican Party when it took over the presidency and Congress after the 1800 election. Despite making enough appointments to establish a Supreme Court majority, Three successive Democratic-Republican presidents, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, didn't alter the Constitution's fundamental character. For instance, despite the Democratic-Republican attacks, the Supreme Court upheld the Bank of the United States unanimously in McCulloch versus Maryland. The justices were prudent men who rose to prominence from a legal practice dependent on arbitrating private law among merchants and were well disposed to protecting the Constitution's rules for a commercial republic. It's often said that politics is downstream of culture, meaning that culture shapes politics more than the other way around. Similarly, legal decision-making is downstream of legal culture, and legal culture is largely shaped by the nature of the legal profession. But the legal profession has changed a lot since Tocqueville and Hamilton saw it as the sociological backdrop of judicial review and by extension the entire republic. I don't have enough time to describe the, uh, I think, the downward trajectory throughout American history of the legal profession for the more formalist, dispassionate group described by Tocqueville. For instance, in my main remarks, I won't uh, talk much about, I think, the great failure of legal culture uh, after the Reconstruction Amendments, the amendments that I think uh, tried to correct some of the uh, defects of the Constitution that Professor Green rightly calls our attention to. Uh, that was a t- total failure to uh, uh, enforce uh, that great promise of uh, giving uh, African-Americans the rights of uh, white Americans for almost a century. Uh, but let me talk a bit about more of the uh, more recent uh, uh, pivot points in that decline. I think the rise of the regulatory state is partly the blame for the legal professions change. Uh, uh, at the time of the Constitution, lawyers obtained their fees largely from private transactions. They negotiated and litigated contracts, conveyed property, drew, drew up trusts. But since the New Deal, much of law has become administrative law, because the modern state is the administrative state. Government lawyers' practice consists in finding new ways to regulate, and for private lawyers, it consists in finding new ways of complying with or avoiding regulation. Lawyers thus gain with any increase in the scope of government and the complexity of its procedures, making them not so inclined to the formal restraints, at least where governmental power is concerned. The other primary factor behind the bar's transformation has been the rise of living constitutionalism. Under living constitutionalism, lawyers and judges are not simply servants of the law, but potentially tribunes of the people, because they can choose to create new rights and discard others. In a legal world without formal anchoring in text and precedence that characterized the lawyer's craft in the early republic, innovation and indeed radicalism become prized as sources of power. Lawyers become no longer the shield of the republic, but the disruptor of its order. I think the American Bar Association history reflects this transformation. Until 1938, the ABA's positions on law were focused mainly on maintaining the constitutional settlement. It favored formalism in law. Its members by a six to one majority opposed Franklin Roosevelt's uh, scheme to pack the Supreme Court to create a flexible interpretation of the Constitution necessary for the quick approval of all New Deal legislation. But as the regulatory state entrenched itself after the New Deal, the ABA grew considerably less devoted to formal order. By the 1960s, it was more openly a left-wing organization The watershed public moment I think marking the shift was the decision in 1987 by four members of its standing committee on the federal judiciary to rate Robert Bork quote, not qualified for the Supreme Court. That committee's remit was to evaluate nominees for uh, 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 judgeships on their professional qualifications. Bork had been Solicitor General of the United States, a professor at Yale Law School, and author of the most influential book on antitrust law in the history of the subject. That adverse judgment of the committee members represented a kind of ideological assassination under the veil of professional assessment, a betrayal of the ABA's own formal uh, uh, rules uh, for professional competence in the interest of keeping a formalist off the court. By the 1990s the ABA began publicly to endorse left liberal positions that were hard to square with any commitment to formalism whatsoever. The most famous resolution was its 1990 affirmation of a constitutional right to abortion. That approbation of the 1973 Roe versus Wade decision showed how far lawyers had come from a devotion to legal formality because the abortion decision was so notoriously amoured from the text of the Constitution or any substantial precedent. As John Hart Ely, himself a supporter of abortion rights, famously observed, Roe is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to be so. I, again, don't have time to go through all the ABA's subsequent resolutions, but today, at last, they read like a left liberal wish list. I think it's fair to say, as the Tory party was once said to be the Anglican party at prayer, the ABA is the Democratic party at the bar. And the changes in legal culture is also present in the legal academy. While law professors in the early republic, from St. George Tucker to St. Joseph Story, also leaned to formalism, a recent study shows that law professors of today overwhelmingly believe that living constitutionalism is the way to interpret the Constitution. Certainly, as Tokyo recognized, not all lawyers need to be formalists to maintain a culture conducive uh, to a constitutional republic. But there must be a critical mass of formalist lawyers to support a constitution that draws a line between different spheres of governments and between individual rights and democratic authority. Now, it might be argued today there's no reason to be worried anymore because today's Supreme Court is the most formalist court for generations. But that ignores the fact that the Supreme Court's decisions will be considered legitimate in the long run only if they accord with the general legal culture. Legal commentators, I think, are the equivalent of theater critics of the Supreme Court. And not surprisingly, given their ideology and jurisprudence, the vast majority of law professors and journalists give it almost uniformly bad reviews. To be sure, the court itself speaks through its opinions as a kind of Republican schoolmaster, but its voice is soft, often drowned out in the cacophony that is modern social media. In fact, I think it's not too much to say that a largely formalist court and the louder, predominantly non-formalist legal culture represented by the legal establishment and professoriate are today struggling for the control of the direction of the law. That battle underscores, I think, the important work of the Federalist Society. It's emphatically not the role of the society to take positions on particular results. Indeed, on many important issues, such as same-sex marriage from a decade ago to the independent state legislature today, the society has powerful advocates on each side. And that should encourage us to understand that uh, legal interpretation is hard work, and to absolutely accept the injunction uh, to humility that Professor Green so wisely uh, enjoins on us. Instead, what unites the society It's its celebration of formality and the dispassion of law that Tocqueville thought necessary, a necessary presupposition to a constitutional republic. It's the society's continuing contribution to legal culture that explains why I'm so happy to be with all of you again this year. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Professor McGuinness, Professor Grove.
3: Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's it's uh, wonderful to be here. So I want to talk about the role of lawyers in a world of polarization, um, and including in a world of effective polarization. And I'll tell you what that term means in just a little bit. So we all know that Congress is polarized. Members of Congress vote along party lines. Members of Congress are tending more to the extremes on both the left and the right. There are fewer and fewer moderates in Congress. And if they are there, they are likely to get primaried at some point in the future. It's not clear if the public is as polarized as our representatives. Um, In fact, earlier this week, I heard the news talking in great surprise about split ticket voting. People actually voting for a Republican for governor and say a Democratic Senate candidate or vice versa. Um, and this was taken in with surprise. But actually political, are not, political scientists are not at all sure that the public itself really is as polarized as we sometimes think. The real problem is this idea of effective polarization. Whatever the actual views, of people. Republicans tend to view Democrats as not patriotic, not well informed, and not altruistic, whereas Republicans view their fellow partisans as patriotic, well-informed, and altruistic. Democrats do the converse. They view their their fellow partisans as well-informed and altruistic and view Republicans as not. And there's an assumption that if you are a Democrat, you must believe X, Y, and Z. And if you are a Republican, you must believe the opposite. And that leads to effective polarization. Not that we're actually that split, but we sure think we are. And we talk in echo chambers and just reaffirm our views of the other. So what does this mean in practice? Just to give an example from everyday life, back in the 1960s, only about 3% of either Republican or Democratic parents said it would bother them if their children married somebody of a different political party. Just not a big deal. There were other things that were a big deal in the 1960s, but ideology was not. Fast forward to 2016, over 60% of Republicans and Democrats, parents, say they would be horrified if their child married someone of a different political party. So here we are in this world of effective polarization. Families are divided, people are divided. And what I wanna suggest is this also matters to our perspective on the federal judiciary, which is one of my areas of expertise. Because you can see this tendency of effective polarization also at work in the way that we talk about judges. Just to take us back to the former president, President Trump dismissed a decision by a federal judge by calling the judge an Obama judge. Chief Justice Roberts, in a rare move, went to the airwaves and said, we don't have Obama judges or Trump judges or Bush judges or Clinton judges. We have a federal judiciary that's trying to do the law and what was striking is after the Chief Justice made that comment not only did President Trump laugh it off but so did most of the legal community with which I am familiar on the left and the right commentators said oh come on Chief Justice of course we have Trump judges and Obama judges and Clinton judges and Bush judges are you kidding me there was an assumption that judges could be labeled. And it gets worse. It's how we talk about the judges. So in a May 2020 report by some Democratic senators, they described the judiciary, this is close to the end of the Trump administration, as, quote, packed with far-right extremists, end quote, most of whom were, quote, chosen not for their qualifications and experience, which are often lacking, but for their demonstrated allegiance to Republican Party political goals, period, end quote. This is not a new thing. Back in the 1980s when Judge Harvey Wilkinson of the Fourth Circuit was nominated, Senator Ted Kennedy said he was the least qualified individual ever to be nominated to an appellate court vacancy. That is a surprise to us now, but that is what it was said. But this is not, of course, just on the Democratic side. Republicans have also assailed judicial nominees and not only President Trump by calling them Obama judges, but recently senators have been talking about President Biden's nominees as extreme ideologues, those who want nothing other than judicial activism. And this isn't just talk. This has real-world consequences. If the president and the Senate are from different political parties, I feel very confident in saying, and very sad in saying, that there will be zero confirmations to the United States Supreme Court. There will be zero confirmations to the federal courts of appeals. And there will be few, if any, confirmations to the federal district courts. What does this mean on the ground? I heard recently about a TRO, a temporary restraining order, on which a judge had been sitting for 15 months. There are parts, there are areas of our country where there just aren't enough federal judges to hear civil cases at all because they're so overburdened by their criminal docket and because there are seats that have not been filled. And I am not saying that this is, the cause, this is caused by one political party. I'm suggesting it's caused by both. We don't know the results of this past election. We don't know who's going to control the Senate. But Senate Republicans have already said, Senate Democrats served as a rubber stamp for President Biden. And when we come in, it will be a new order. And whenever there is a Republican president, and a democratic controlled Senate, it will be the same without some serious changes in the procedures of the Senate and the attitudes of our system. So, what can we as lawyers do about this? One would think that the process of legal education, the process of becoming a lawyer, would be a way to answer this problem of effective polarization because we are taught in law school to think about both sides of every argument. When I'm teaching first semester civil procedure, so the real new lawyers, this is really hard for them. I use one, one problem in civil procedure to illustrate the concept of forum non-convenience. I know I just lost half the room by mentioning that term. Um, but I use, a, I, I use cases based from real life, and this one involves the use, of, the use of experimental drugs on children in a foreign country without their parents' knowledge or consent. Now the legal issue boiled down to form nonconvenience, but after class, a student came up to me and said, Professor Grove, I could never argue for that pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company, even on an issue of procedure. I could never do it. And I said, Well, one, you don't have to. But two, what you do have to do for your own client is be able to predict every single thing the attorney for the pharmaceutical company is going to say. Because the only way that you can serve your client is to know what the other side is going to say before they say it. To overcome this idea that the other side is inherently bad and put yourself in the shoes of the other side, that is something that we do every day in litigation. What I would encourage us to do is to take that same skill that we have as lawyers in litigation, that we do on behalf of our clients, and apply that to life as well. So our founders, depending on on which history you read, did not anticipate political parties but they did anticipate political factions. In fact, James Madison talked endlessly about political factions and viewed the Constitution's design as a way of addressing that. So we've been dealing with political factions for a very long time. What I urge us all to do is to take up Professor Green's suggestion of humility humility about our own perspectives, and to exercise a bit of good faith about the perspectives on the other side. To say that you are a person as well, and you may have different views from me, but I'm going to treat with humanity and respect and listen. Listening is a skill that I think some of us have forgotten, but it's a skill that can help us understand the views of the other side. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Professor Grove. Mr. Keller?
4: Thanks, Judge Bumate. Um It's great to be here on the far right amongst my fellow panelists where I belong. <laughs>
0: um,
4: I'm going to do two untraditional things in my remarks. The first is to use less time than I was allotted. Um, And the second is to directly answer one of the questions posed by the prompt to describe this panel that none of you probably read, um, which is, uh, is there sort of a background assumption about what the legal profession is supposed to look like built into our constitutional design? As an original matter, I'm not so sure. But certainly in modern times, I think the answer is yes. There is a background assumption that's very important. And it's this, that we will have a mostly tolerant profession that vigorously defends the right of fellow lawyers to take on clients with any cause whatsoever, no matter how popular or unpopular that cause is. And it won't surprise you to hear, uh, since I'm a good conservative pessimist, that I don't think that that background assumption still holds. It did until very recently, uh, but I think the times they are changing rapidly, and that's a problem that we need to be thinking about. So. To quickly sketch this out so that we can get to the, the q and uh, I'll start with why I think the assumption is necessary um, in modern times, uh, one of the main reasons I think it no longer holds, and then a, a possible set of solutions to that pro- uh, problem. So uh, the reason that I think the assumption is so necessary uh, is because of judicial supremacy. Uh, it wouldn't be a good Federalist Society Convention if someone didn't take an early swipe uh, at Cooper versus Aaron, so here's my opportunity to do so, uh, and Judge Bumate and to all of the other jurists in the room, uh, you should be working hard to return the judiciary to a role of deciding cases and controversies between actual litigants. Maybe go back to Siri Adam opinions or just you know one word orders affirmed, reversed. Uh, I think that would be helpful, uh, but that's not the world that we live in. Uh, it's just a reality that we have to face today. That. Uh, The court's uh, role is to, you know, it's emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is for everyone, not to the litigants to the particular case or controversy before them. And so when our judiciary announces rules of decision about major constitutional doctrine, no one's ever going to go back and say, well, the petitioner didn't raise this argument in his or her brief, so the respondent didn't point this out to the court, so it's still an open question, no. When the court announces a rule at the Court of Appeals level and certainly at the Supreme Court level, that's going to govern all of us. And uh, as I'm sure the judge could attest to, and every other jurist in the room could attest to, courts are really busy. They hear a lot of cases, and they rely on litigants in our adversarial system to pose the right questions, to raise the right arguments, to frame the issue in the way that's best for their client, but then ultimately will allow the court to expound on the constitutional or statutory principles at issue and announce that rule for everybody. So if you get slipshod legal work uh, from lawyers who aren't willing to take on particular causes because they're unpopular, because they don't uh, suit the sort of fashion of the time, that's a major problem because the courts are going to be handicapped in their adjudications of disputes. And if there's a valence in the sorts of things that are deemed unpopular from a political perspective, you're going to get courts reaching particular outcomes that uh, reflect that valence. So that's why I think it's extremely important that the legal culture adhere to the traditional view where John Adams could go out and defend you know, people who were on the wrong side of the revolutionary question. And though it may have been unpopular with the masses, the legal profession would coalesce around that and say, no, of course it was fine for John Adams to do that. He had to vigorously rep- represent his clients. And those clients were entitled to a vigorous defense. Um, Why do we not have that right now? Uh, Not everybody may share this view, but I I think it's pretty obvious. Corporations have gone insane. uh, With their wokeism, with um, ESG, uh, the, the sort of notion that they would be Switzerland and just try and sell their widgets, their products and services to everybody of all political stripes, maximize shareholder profits and then dividend that money out for shareholders to do with what they wish. Uh, That was the regime, I think, for the most part, for a long time. That regime has fallen by the wayside and now corporations are putting immense pressure on the elite law firms of our country to support particular political causes, to not get involved with particular uh, clients who have valences that they don't support. And it won't shock you to hear from the person on the far right of the stage that I think that that is inuring to the benefit of the left uh, and the politics that they support and not to the right. And sort of my uh, premier illustration of that, my John Adams of our time, is Paul Clement. Um, You know, I have the privilege of being opposite Paul Clement, since I'm the only conservative plaintiff's lawyer in the country um, on some (laughs) matters. Uh, And, you know, he definitely makes me quake in my boots. He's the greatest appellate advocate of our generation. The man is a machine. Uh, You know, he goes and does Supreme Court arguments commando style with no notes uh, at the podium, and he just does a magnificent job. And so for the sin of winning six to three, uh, on you know the constitutional rights associated with the Second Amendment, he had to disassociate himself from Kirkland and Alice, a place that used to be pretty hospitable to conservative lawyers, uh, even though you know management didn 't believe in all of that stuff. but there were plenty of conservatives at Kirkland because you know he's he 's doing too good a job winning. For the conservative side and the reason that he was at Kirkland and Ellis in the first place is because Kirkland essentially bought his law practice Bancroft because he had to previously disassociate himself from King and Spaulding who didn't like him representing unpopular clients what kind of world do we live in where top law firms don't want Paul Clement working with them um, to- A world where law firms no longer adhere to the view, the logical prior that we were talking about, uh, of what the legal culture should be. You don't have to agree with Paul, Uh, you don't have to want the causes that he's taking on to be successful, but the idea that you can't tolerate him, you can't countenance him being at your firm is a major problem. And whether it's because the management of these firms um, don't have a spine and aren't willing to tell their clients, listen, uh, we will represent you vigorously in your matters, but there's no way uh, we're not going to let Paul take on the matters that he has. Or they actually believe it, I can't tell, or it's probably a combination of both of those things. We are definitely in a world where uh, law firms in the AMLA 100 I think are being uh, becoming increasingly hostile to conservative lawyers representing conservative causes. And so that is gonna cycle through the system in a dangerous way as conservative clients get less high quality representation. Um, so what's my proposed solution to the problem? Uh, to quote Barry Weiss, courage, uh, first things first, conservatives at these law firms, partners at these law firms, You know, Miguel, uh, Ted Olson, you know, sorry to call you out by name, hit reply all when the all-firm email comes around spewing this nonsense and say this has to stop. Uh, We're not gonna tolerate that. We're important at this firm. We care about these causes and people are entitled to their differences uh, of opinion and we're gonna have a pluralistic tolerant culture that goes back uh, to the way that things used to be not so long ago. And we can have a vigorous clash of ideas, but our law firms are going to take on unpopular causes on the right sometimes, just like we countenance taking on unpopular causes on the left or more popular causes on the left. And that's going to be a-okay. The other thing is I would encourage young conservatives have the courage to not go to those law firms. You don't have to go to Gibson Dunn or Jones Day or Kirkland and Ellis to have a great legal career. Um, you know, to be self-promotional, you can come join me. (laughs) Um, We're hiring. Uh, And there are lots of other boutique firms that can still uh, give you the work-life satisfaction that you were looking for when you went to law school, that can validate your incredible intellectual gifts and credentials, but we, we need to be serious about making sure that everybody can get excellent representation in our legal system uh, because if the current trends continue, uh, you know, both for political reasons, but also from a, from a greater societal perspective, I'm deeply concerned about the repercussions of that. I, and I think conservatives are going to be on the short end of the stick uh, just about every time.
0: Thanks so much, Mr. Keller. Before uh, we go to the Q and A, just wanted to ask if any of the panelists wanted to respond to anything they've heard, uh, Professor Green.
1: Uh, sh- sure. So I'll, I'll just um, make a, a, a general comment and then a sort of comment slash question uh, to uh, Ashley Keller, I'm, I'm in order to try to figure out um, the contours of the of the of the argument. So um, the general Uh, claim, or the general comment, is that uh, my perception, so I I, I do think that, as far as I can tell, there's been a a general decline in formalism among American lawyers since the founding. Um, uh, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that 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 necessarily represents uh, a kind of uh, moral or ethical uh, failing on the part of lawyers, Um, but the fact that The job of a lawyer, and particularly a public lawyer, in the United States is very different now than it was uh, in the 18th century or in the early 19th century. Uh, The the Reconstruction Amendments uh, that Professor McGuinness refers to um, add a bunch of rights into the Constitution. Rights review wasn't a major part of the job of a a judge uh, in the early 19th century and the late 18th century. Now it obviously is. Um, so the materials that we're dealing with are quite different. And the population we're dealing with is quite different. We understand everyone to have rights. We understand everyone to be able to make claims. Uh, and uh, as a diverse, uh, pluralistic nation in which we understand everyone to have rights, we have strong disagreements about what those rights are um, and what they require. Um, those are become essentially contested in ways in which um, who owns Blackacre is a very different kind of question than um, who has a right to equality within some setting, or whether someone um, has a right to reproductive freedom. Right? These are very different kinds of legal questions, and so of course you get less formalism um, because well, we, just, we, we essentially disagree about these things. Not because some of us are, you know, have the right answer and other, other, others of us don't. We disagree because we're different from each other, uh, and different people have different commitments, values, experiences, and so forth, and so the job of a lawyer uh, is quite different. Uh, the question uh, for uh, uh, Ashley keller uh, is uh, is how should we understand the general proposition? Um, and I, and this is a genuine question because i'm'm I'm, um, I think most of us don't believe uh, that um, that certainly in civil cases that every any every law firm should represent you know any client who brings any non-frivolous claim, right? That's not, and I don't take that to be your your argument. So there is some point at which um, one gets to choose whether one supports the ends of one's client. Uh, And so I'm trying to figure out what that point is um, for the firm, uh, at the firm level. Um, uh, Obviously, I think criminal cases are somewhat different than civil cases, at least I think civil and criminal cases are somewhat different uh, along this dimension. Uh, If it seems as if some particular client or some particular um, a set of ends is just not getting quality representation, right? I think maybe that should be relevant to uh, ha- how a firm understands its own obligation. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case with Paul Clement, right? They, his clients got quality representation. Um, so um, uh, is, it, is it, or is it just about sort of outside pressure? Um, um, firms should make their own decisions or their own choices shouldn't be unduly influenced by... Um, by by others. Um, That seems right to me, although I don't know, I think it's hard to know um, when that's happening and when it's not happening. So what counts as sort of being pressured from the outside versus having one's own views about um, the ends of one's client. So just trying to, this is a a law professor thing to do to try to abstract away from uh, the particular facts uh, and try to figure out what the general claim is. Yeah, I
4: didn't know we were going Socratic method today. Um, I'm I'm in the hot seat. Um, I think at Yale now you can put up a sign saying, I don't want to be called on today, but uh, you could never get away with that uh, at at the University of Chicago. So uh, I'll accept the challenge. Um, uh, of, Of course I'm not saying that a law firm has to take on every matter. Uh, obviously, they you know, like any private business, retain the freedom to choose. Uh, but as a cultural matter, I would like them to have a sort of general disposition that if someone's willing to pay perfectly green money uh, for us to take on this matter and it doesn't you know trip up rule eleven or something like that, and Paul wants to take it on, for instance, we 're going to let him uh, and of course the the you know the gun manufacturer clients received excellent representation. Uh, he won, and that's the nature of why he had to disassociate himself from the firm. So uh, while in any individual case, uh, I would never suggest that firms shouldn't have the discretion to pass on it, and actually even at a you know, broader level, I'm not suggesting a regulatory response. You know, The heavy hand of the state shouldn't come in and say, Jones Day, thou shalt take every civil case that is willing to pay you your outrageous hourly rates. Like, no, that, that's, not, that's not the solution. Um, but the partnership of the firm ought to be willing to say, man, we disagree with Paul, and I hate that he's representing these clients, but it's part of our culture as a legal profession that we allow that. Um, you know, he's making arguments that are not only non-frivolous, they're actually prevailing in the courts, and the, firms are getting, the firm is getting paid for the representation, you know, good money, and it's making us all as partners a little richer, and so that ought to be fine. And the clients ought to be told, uh, to the extent they're putting on pressure, pressure on the firm to say you shouldn't allow Paul to take on these matters, hey, butt out of it. Don't be so nosy. We'll represent you in a a very vigorous way, but you ought to have a culture of tolerance and understand the importance of the legal profession taking on causes that you might disagree with, like keep selling your widgets and we'll represent you when you breach your contracts and try and get you out uh, from your responsibilities, but that doesn't really have uh, anything to do with whether Paul represents uh, gun manufacturers. Uh, so don't succumb to the pressure that clients are putting on you. Now I recognize as a good capitalist, there's a little tension there because to the extent the firm is gonna lose good paying clients who are you know, just getting their noses out of joint, that the firm is taking on other clients that they don't like, you know, from a pure bottom line profit maximization perspective, you could say, hey, we have to serve the interests of our clients. But if we're gonna restore the legal culture to one that's more tolerant uh, of divergent viewpoints, there has to be some some pushback.
0: Professor McGuinness.
2: So let me just... uh speak on that. Just one point I would add to the point about Paul Clement is they asked him to give up representation of his client. And I think that is what is so striking about it. It's one thing to say, well, we have some interests and therefore we won't represent you. But to ask a partner to give something up, I think that represents uh, something that seems to me more egregious. Um, so, uh, So to response to... For Professor Green, I guess I'm uh, really suggesting that uh, it's very important that uh, we approach the Constitution with the same formalism that we approach uh, contracts, and the example I would give of that is, I think, the which I talked a bit about in my talk, and talk at much greater length. You mentioned your own books. I. Have to mention my own with Mike uh, Rappaport, The Originalism and the Good Constitution, where we discussed the real terrible failure after the Reconstruction Amendments uh, for uh, uh, the legal culture and the Supreme Court uh, to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment. I think it was really a failure of formalism. They considered things like, well, what, what are the, were, were these social practices reasonable to uphold rather than look at what seems to me uh, indisputable was that uh, the 14th Amendment was to get rid of the Black Codes and that this was uh, uh, illegal, uh, this kind of discrimination under the 14th Amendment. Even more clearly, I think, with respect to the 15th Amendment, which made it very clear uh, uh, that uh, voting rights could not be... um, uh, 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 infringed on the basis of race. And if we, we, we think if, if there would have been different decisions uh, back then, that would have been a great blow against the dreadful uh, uh, Jim Crow uh, South. Uh, so I, I actually see in our history uh, the failure of uh, formalism to be uh, one of the ways that we have not, did not give full measure of what I thought you very eloquently, uh, described as some of the failures of the constitutional process in the original constitution, followed by at least some substantial uh, constitutional correction in the 14th and 15th Amendment. And uh, I think uh, the legal culture in some sense blanched uh, because, for reasons, I think including racism, I think including the uh, idea that was very popular at the time that we need reconciliation between the North and the South. So... Um, uh, and the advantage of formalism is that I think that at least, uh, and I guess segues me into discussing a bit of Professor Groh's remarks, is that at least it gives us an empirical uh, fact of the matter about which we can disagree. Uh, and it's not the case that always uh, uh, the empirical fact of the matter it gives conservative or liberal results. And one of the great I think, advantages to a culture of formalism, which I think we're just starting to see now, is we're seeing more liberals come into, in, in the legal economy beginning to be formalists and uh, deploying uh, formalist methods and thinking, well, maybe there are some liberal results here that we get from uh, formalist methods. And we have a debate about something where there can be a, a fact of the matter. The one other point I would make with, uh, with respect to uh, Professor Groh's remarks is Uh, I don't think our polarization is exogenous uh, to the Constitution. So as a formalist like me looks at political polarization and says at least one of the causes of political polarization has been the rise of the unconstrained uh, administrative state. Because when we had a structure, we actually had Congress making, forcing Congress with some kind of a, a delegation doctrine to make the hard compromises, that meant we got something in the middle. People felt they were heard. We have a structure now with the administrative state where we get wildly different policies from one administration to another, and that abets polarization. It also gets the sense that we have to control the presidency above all, and that one, uh, if we don't, uh, we're going to be crushed, and that, I think, gives a, a, a feeds into effective polarization. So all I would point out is that uh, there are real issues of how we interpret the Constitution that relate to the really very serious problem of polarization that I think that Professor Grove has very uh, sensibly put on the table.
0: Go ahead, Professor Grove.
3: Right, so so thank you. I, uh, um, I, I share Professor Green's perspective and it sounds like a, a the perspective of many that we have a decline in formalism, but I, I have to express some agreement with what Professor McGinnis just said that when you get away from formalism, that's not necessarily helpful to people without power, because people in power tend not to be representative of those without power, and to the extent they have a lot of discretion to do whatever they want, that may not be that may not help the powerless. Um, And I do think the the failure to enforce the actual text of the 14th and 15th Amendments is an example of this. I'm gonna cite another example that's probably gonna get me into trouble, um, because I know Professor McGinnis is on the other side of this one. Justice Gorsuch's decision in Bostock versus Clayton County. That was a very formalist, textualist reading of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to say that the prohibition on sex discrimination also protects gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals. I think it would have been much harder for that, vic- that left victory to occur without uh, some formalism on the United States Supreme Court. What worries me, um, and I've seen this in the reaction to the Bostock opinion from many of my, many of my textualist friends, are people comfortable, comfortable with formalism when it leads to results that they do not like? I've seen some loosening of standing doctrine and other procedures depending on whether people are getting the results that they like. I've seen some loosening on textualism. I think the reason that common good constitutionalism is a a rising movement, and I share Judge Pryor's criticisms of of that perspective, I think the reason there is that movement is that originalism is now assumed not necessarily to lead to all to answers in all one direction. I view that as a benefit of any interpretive theory that it does not lead to answers in one direction. But we're seeing this effect of polarization all over the place, right? People want answers that fit their priors. And I think that's highly problematic for our legal order. Mr
0: Keller, any further remarks? Okay. Great, well, uh, we'll now open up to Q&A. Uh, I want to start off with Professor Green. I wonder if you could describe more what you mean by humility. Like, what does that mean? Like, can you give us an example of what a lack of humility is in the legal profession? Uh, sh- sure. So I'm specifically
1: thinking, you know, and I, I think humility is a, is a general virtue, right? so beyond lawyering. Um, but when I refer to it in this context, I'm thinking about it in the constitutional context. And um, uh, I'll give I'll give a concrete example that um, feels somewhat foreign to um, to what our what our constitutional culture has become but I think is uh, is important is in how we think about remedies um, for example, right so right now the way in which cases um, uh, constitutional cases get tend to get litigated is uh, one side um, sort of and this is sort of a, a, a corollary to our adversarial um, party presentation system. One side sort of presses their advantage as much as possible. The other side presses uh, the claims of their client in the other direction. And the judge sort of picks one or the other. Right? That's sort of the culture. And then the opinion sort of looks like a brief um, uh, for one side or the other to try to um, to make the case that um, one side or the other was right, was, was right the other uh, was wrong. Um, uh, and then, you know, awards essentially total victory um, to one side or the other. There are, are in many other uh, constitutional cultures uh, a mechanism uh, that's referred to as uh, 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 unconstitutional but not void or vo- um, uh, which is to say that you make a decision uh, that uh, a particular practice has a problem with it or has some constitutional issue, um, but because you understand the government um, to be trying to accomplish something valuable, even if they're doing it in a ham-handed way or even if they've um, uh, committed a violation. You say, we'll give you six months to decide, um, uh, to to, to tell us how you're going to resolve the constitutional issue, uh, and then we'll move on. Um, As opposed to um, thinking about the the issue as um, the government must be wrong or right, and we're just going to strike it down. Um, or not strike it down, so using remedial discretion as a way to acknowledge that there are valuable ends, even um, uh, on the side of the party that's lost um, that's a that's just one concrete example, but there there are lots of lots more in the book. Um, uh, <laughs> but there are lots of lots of ways in which um, and this actually goes a little bit to to Ashley keller's point about uh, about the role of judges uh, is uh, uh, is to to think much more critically about um, about deciding cases on the basis of their facts, deciding cases on the basis of what's who's right today without making a commitment as to who may be right tomorrow on different facts, who may be right um, six months from now or ten years from now, um, to keep the litigants invested in the constitutional culture um, and that's a, that I think is a, a tribute to pluralism, a tribute to the Fact that we're all very different and have very different ends, but have to have to keep um, invested in the same system.
0: Great, uh, Professor Brigidas, you mentioned a number of factors that have contributed to the decline of the legal culture. I think you've said living constitutionalism, the ABA, uh, the legal academia. I was wondering if you think that there, which of those factors is most upstream of the others? Is it? Do you think it's legal academia that's that's Driving this or any other of the factors is driving all the other factors
2: uh, it's it's hard to know one, one thing that is uh, I come from a Northwestern Law School, which is a school mm-hmm. where people have uh, do a lot of empiricism they put up a regression mm-hmm. analysis on the board and talk about all the various factors that influence things and I think in any social phenomenon one has to be i guess humble about identifying a single factor because uh, so I do think that one important change has been the rise of the regulatory state, at least insofar as you think that uh, an element of the Constitution was constraint on government because um, uh, that gives all uh, lawyers, even if they're against, uh, even if they're arguing in this case against uh, a greater scope for government and interest in the greater scope uh, of government because they become well, they're sort of a walking transaction cost, right? And so that allows them to uh, make uh, more money. And I think that has been one of the cha- one of the changes uh, that has occurred. Uh, I do think the prominence of law schools. Uh, after all, you think about the nineteenth century, most uh, lawyers. Um, uh, were uh, got uh, became lawyers through uh, association with other lawyers. There was no law school for most people. Uh, and even law schools in the early part of the last century were often trade schools. Now law schools are much more part of the university system. Uh, I've even seen during my own time that the universities have, uh, law schools have moved towards the uh, university away from the bar. What I mean by that, most of my colleagues have PhDs. They identify uh, with the university system. And the universities are, uh, for whatever reasons, a- a- extremely uh, left wing in one way. And also, they tend not to think that law has uh, an autonomous discipline of its own. So if you have a PhD in a different subject, you understand the structure of law in some other way, and in some sense, want to explain away what law is. And that, I think, is in some tension with formalism as well. So that makes me, like many conservatives, sort of pessimistic for the future, because I don't see the the administrative state going away or being very constrained. And I don't see any uh, resistance to this trend of law schools being taken over by the universities and having both the the ideological perspective and the perspective that law is in some sense secondary and should not be understood as an independent formal discipline. So the question makes me even more pessimistic than when I began on this panel. (laughs) Sorry to do that.
0: Professor Grove, I'm, I'm curious if your thoughts on if whether judges themselves have contributed to this effective polarization. You, one of the questions I most frequently get asked is what do I think about the tone of dissents and opinions these days? And I wonder, are, are we contributing to this uh, phenomenon?
3: So um, there used to be more, uh, more unanimous opinions on the US Supreme Court. Um, but there have been dissenting opinions um, speaking in strident tones. For quite some time. I, I think actually judges are not yet the problem. Um, I have a high opinion of judges, um, <laughs> all of them. Um, I, I actually wish people paid more attention to how judges do their job because I think if people looked at how the appellate courts, for example, work, that there are judges from very different perspectives and backgrounds who come together and decide almost every case unanimously on panels. Um, there are very few on banc hearings. They're starting to pick up a little bit, but not much, uh, in part because appellate judges actually agree on the law. I think that gets lost in our, in our culture today as people focus almost entirely on the US Supreme Court and almost entirely on a very small part of the docket of the United States Supreme Court and have very little sense of the lower court judges. I've talked to judges who say, you know, we wish the media would not label us as a Trump appointee or a Biden appointee or an Obama appointee or a Bush appointee. We wish they just call us judge. Um, so I think, the judiciary actually, people being more aware of what the judiciary does could help the perspective um, because right now what people see to the extent they see anything at all, it's the confirmation process and that is not helpful to the legitimacy of the federal judiciary.
0: Thank you. I'll ask one more question Mr. Keller and then I'll open it up to the floor. Uh, Mr. Keller, uh, there's some attorneys explicitly consider themselves as cause lawyers right? and you mentioned you're a conservative lawyer. If, if you're so explicit and express about it, why not be able to hold them to account for that? Why not hold them for those views?
4: You mean like if someone says, I, I only do right-wing causes, Correct. that should be fine? Sure, uh, I think that's okay. And then hold them
0: accountable for that if you disagree.
4: Well, when you say hold them accountable, like I think a boutique firm that mm-hmm. has 20 lawyers or something like that, sure, it doesn't have to go take on causes that are You know the polar opposite of what they formed their firm to do. It's very different if you're at an AmLaw 100 firm or an AmLaw 10 firm. There're going to be a thousand lawyers there. I would hope that there's going to be a diversity of opinion amongst those thousand lawyers. And so as a consequence, you have to have a more tolerant culture that allows all sorts of different matters to be accepted at the firm. But yeah, I take your point. Like there's, there's definitely a place for specialization, Um, but you know sort of. Making an analogy to cancel culture. We don't want to cancel those firms We don't want them to no longer to be able to earn a livelihood because we're gonna bring all of the pressure of the private sector to bear On them and say hey you took on this unpopular cause And so we're gonna try and make it our mission in life for you not to be able to earn a living doing this in the future that That is what's corrosive and dangerous and I think part and parcel of what you're seeing today from the big firm cultures
0: Thank you.
5: Okay. We have a question on that side of the floor. Hi, Gary Lawson, Boston University School of Law and uh, John McGinnis read my mind because uh, what I got up here to say was that even though this is going to come up later in the conference I was surprised by how little reference there was to the role of law schools in shaping legal culture. I mean legal culture comes from a lot of places, it comes from up, it comes from down, it's a multi-body problem which is why it's such a mess, but what at least in my limited experience I've seen in recent years is a cascade, not a move, a cascade towards a conception of legal education not as training lawyers to represent clients at all, but rather to train lawyers as agents of social change. And you can fill in the leftist in brackets any place that you like. And if that's really what being a lawyer is about, then a lot of the things that we're seeing commenting on in legal culture are, are of course, the the logical consequences of that. Is there some deeper question that we're all avoiding here about what it is that legal education is supposed to be training people to do?
3: So I I was trying to suggest that law school is part of this, right? That once we train our, our students to think about every single case on both sides and think about not just their client's position, but what they would argue if they were arguing for the other side and really put themselves in the shoes of the other side um, should be, and I think still is, part and parcel of legal education. Um, it's always nice to see you, Professor Lawson. Uh, but I, I'm going to disagree, actually, that that's what, what most law schools do. Now, I, I I can't speak for all law schools, but I've taught it five, six now, Um, and at every single one, I'm doing the same thing. Um, And let me just say this, this ranges from Harvard to Northwestern to Texas, my current school, um, to William & Mary to Alabama and Florida State. What I've done at every school is taught law and prepared students to be litigators, and the professors that I know at those schools are doing the same thing in the classroom. Now, I do know people in legal academia and elsewhere who would like law schools to be preparing lawyers to be agents of social change and very much advocate that. Um, And what I hear from those folks is a dissatisfaction with the current state of legal teaching because we're not doing that nearly enough. Um, So my own view is that, at least right now, law school actually is doing what should be preparing, it should be preparing people to think about things on, on both sides what I worry is that we're not taking those legal skills and applying it to other aspects of life.
1: And I'll, just a quick follow-up. Um, and My experience uh, is consistent with Professor Gross' experience about what law schools are doing. But I do wonder why it can't be both. Um, I think law schools should train lawyers to be the lawyers they want to be. Um, and some of those lawyers would like to be agents of social change. And that's OK. Lawyers have. Uh, often been agents of social change. And some of those lawyers don't want to do that. And they should be able to get a high quality legal education as well. Um, so I, 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 think, I think one can wear the, the hats at the same time. I do think people uh, sometimes get those confused uh, as to which one is which. Um, and I think it's important for um, teachers to have clarity about that and to, um, and to make sure they're, they're teaching their entire class at the same time. Um, but, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily an either or uh, proposition.
2: Uh, So I'm afraid I'm more worried uh, than either of my uh, colleagues, Uh, and I worry about it for two reasons. One, I worry actually that, at least at my law school, uh, just as a practical matter, people don't train people to be uh, on both sides just because of their approach to teaching. Many of my colleagues teach from PowerPoints, the Socratic method has clearly declined uh, since I've been a law professor. And so the idea that you should argue both sides of the case is just as a technical matter in class is in, I think, really very substantial decline, at least at my law school. We're all a little uh, captured by our own experience. And in fact, I've been told by my, some students, who I teach in the second year, that I'm the first professor they've ever experienced who uh, uh, cross-examines them on the case and asks students to take uh, different sides. And I also know from colleagues who told me, and these are not conservative colleagues, that they're afraid to have a very kind of open-ended discussion because they're afraid of what some of the students then are going to call them out on. Because, of course, an open-ended discussion is necessarily one where someone might say something a little off, as it were, right, and get in trouble. And so that really does concern me. And so it's not only a question of professors, it may also be a question of students. But then I just can't uh, have to also suggest that there is a real problem of the ideological uniformity of the legal academy. And it's just not that I am saying this. There's an article entitled, not by conservatives, called The Ideological Uniformity of the Legal Academy <laughs> uh, by uh, political scientists at uh, uh, Harvard Kennedy School and some law professors. They show just dramatically the case that law professors stand, uh, no, they're not Democrat, they stand to the left of the median Democrat, and they also admit that the great interest in uh, uh, diversity in the legal academy, which is the very great focus of hiring, again, at my school, a very strong focus on hiring, has moved the academy even farther to the left than it would otherwise be. Because in general, uh, uh, women professors and professors in minority groups are are even more liberal than the already liberal uh, professors who uh, the white male professors. So that's a problem, I think, if we want to actually have as vigorous uh, a debate uh, in law schools and give people the sense of, uh, of, uh, of a pluralistic legal culture if the legal culture uh, in law schools is neither very adversarial in the sense that I describe, and it is politically uniform. So I agree that is a serious problem.
3: So I just want to add in I, I, I agree that... Um, th- Law schools need all kinds of perspectives, both in the student body and in uh, and on the faculty, including different ideological perspectives, um, and that is something that is missing from from many law schools.
4: Uh, I'm a venal practitioner, so I defer to my friends in the ivory tower. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to
0: this side. You have a question over here?
6: Uh, yes, we we keep hearing that judges your name. are not yeah. legislatures. My name's Art Mackember, and I hail from uh, the wilds of North Idaho. Um, we keep hearing that judges are not legislators, and we hear Just, uh, Justice uh, Roberts say, "Well, they're not an Obama judge, they're not a Trump judge. They're, you know, we don't associate with this legislative policy spectrum of right and left." Uh, however, that is uh, the judiciary is thunderously silent on the idea of what is then the spectrum of the judiciary and. You know, from the 12th and 13th centuries, I think English law has well developed that there is a, there's a spectrum for the law, which is either law or equity. Uh, the king's law, the church's equity. Um, but we don't hear much about that. What we hear is, well, they're an Obama judge or they're a Trump judge. And my question for the panel is, to what extent is the judiciary and legal culture harmed by assuming the policy-making spectrum of the legislature, right and left, blue or red, uh, uh, as opposed to creating and emphasizing its own spectrum, uh, which is, in my view, law and equity, or something else besides the legislative spectrum that we get into
1: these big arguments about. Anyone want to take this? Uh I'll take a I'll take a stab uh at this. So um I, I I I'll go back to something that uh Professor Grove said earlier, which is that you know the vast majority of of courts um are not handling case the kinds of cases that call for uh the the, the label of Obama judge or Trump judge or or what have you, and I think we could do better to um recognize and uh and um, and uh, make more visible uh, that fact. Uh, I do think, and I think this will be maybe a bit controversial on this panel, <laughs> that the, the kinds of issues that do call uh, people to refer to judges by, part, by, by partisan labels uh, are um, issues that people disagree about not because uh, uh, some of them are right about what the law requires, and others of them are wrong about, the law, about, about, what, about what the law requires. They disagree about some of those issues because those issues have uh, inherent political content uh, to them. Um, one can have a discussion and a debate about the degree to which um, the Constitution should be understood to apply to a set of issues that have inherently political content. Um, But that's unavoidable, right? So um, whether one thinks that equality requires the government not to engage in race-based affirmative action or whether one believes that equality requires the government to engage in race-based affirmative action is not a question that can be answered by traditional legal materials. It's a question that has political content to it. uh, And I don't think that we're necessarily well served by pretending that it doesn't have political content to it. And I think the real question is what do we do about that unavoidable fact? Um, what should be the role of judges under circumstances in which there is unavoidable political content to what they're doing? Um, how should we think about the role of legally educated, legally trained um, people who have no, um, who structurally have no political accountability, answering questions that have inherently political content? Uh, I think those are really hard questions. Those are questions about. The design of political institutions—they're questions about how to structure state power—and uh, uh, I, I think, again, I think we're not well served by pretending that they're uh, just the same as again, who owns Blackacre? Okay.
4: Can I jump in? And I, I mostly agree with that. I understand why Chief Justice Roberts, for institutional integrity reasons, said there's no such thing as Trump uh, versus Bush versus Obama judges. But let's get real. There are such a thing as those different sorts of judges. And we at the Federalist Society are responsible in large part for that, and for good reason. We said no more suitors, right? Uh, We we, there, there there was a time where your jurisprudential philosophy didn't line up as neatly with the president who nominated you or the Senate that confirmed you. And we on the right said, holy cow, we're appointing judges to the Supreme Court who approached the Constitution and interpreting statutory texts in a way that is completely antithetical to the way that we believe it should be interpreted. So we're going to put a stop to that. And it's become a very successful movement. And so it's pretty logical to say that if you were nominated by Trump, after all the promises he made to the people in this room, uh, like the gentleman to my right, you have a certain approach to interpreting the Constitution and statutes that's very different than the way that his colleagues who've been nominated by President Biden approach interpreting the Constitution. Now, I think everyone here believes that textualism and originalism should not be utilized as things to achieve conservative political outcomes. We should apply those principles neutrally, and if it reaches a liberal political outcome, i.e. there's no such thing as a constitutional cap on punitive damages for us plaintiff's lawyers. That's great. (laughs) Uh, That's what the original public meaning requires, and you reach that outcome irrespective of the political valence. So there's not a one-to-one mapping between being an originalist and being a conservative, or there shouldn't be, but we have absolutely injected the political philosophy of judges into presidential elections and senatorial elections, and so, you know, chastising the public for actually having eyes and ears and recognizing that it's working, you know, that, that we're just saying the quiet
7: part out loud.
0: I'm glad I'm the moderator, so I don't have to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a question over here.
7: So I think you might have just conflated political philosophy and judicial philosophy. Even after you just do the distinction between political philosophy and judicial philosophy and political outcomes. Can you hold the
0: microphone closer to you? Sorry. Oh, sorry. No,
7: yeah. um, I think I, th- I think that you may have just conflated political philosophy and judicial philosophy, which are not the same thing. And I think you probably meant judicial philosophy, not political philosophy. But I'm not sure. Um, uh, but um, my qu- I have actually two questions. One for. Uh, Professor McGinnis, and one for Professor Green, so um, Professor McGinnis oh, and I should have identified myself also, uh, I suppose Lee Lee Limanotis with the Federal Society faculty division um, so my my question for Professor uh, McGinnis is that Professor Green is making the argument, I think, that the problem is not necessarily that uh, uh, Judges you know are doing something improper when they're injecting moral considerations into uh, and, and not being formalists when they're injecting moral considerations into their decision making because uh, the legal materials actually call for it. Uh, I think that's his argument uh, and Therefore, maybe there should be, and I'm not sure if I have this right, but maybe there should be a different set of judicial techniques for dealing with those legal materials than uh, formalism uh, for deciding those kinds of cases. Uh, So that's my question for Professor McGuinness. Um, My question for uh, Professor Green is uh, this humility uh, it does strike me as desirable, but is it to be expected if people are fighting about moral issues? Uh, or are you going and are you going to insist on it if they're fighting about moral issues? Uh, I mean, you, it sounded as if you were saying that it's important for lawyers to draw the line somewhere about what they're, where they're going what, what kind of thing they're going to represent, what kind of client they're going to represent in civil cases. Uh, does that decision also call for a lot of humility, or do you th- and, and that may then help us understand perhaps the tension between law schools training social justice warriors and training people to be uh, uh, you know able to represent both sides okay.
0: Professor McGuinness, if you want to
7: start
2: uh, so I take there to be actually two questions uh, in in uh, 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 Lieberman Otis's um, uh, intervention. So, one is uh, what are the legal materials, and then should we follow them? Uh, I think uh, it's their arguments to be an originalist. They don't actually follow just from the nature of the legal materials. I have argued they follow from the nature of the Uh, majoritarian consensus at the time of the Constitution, correct it, as uh, as I do agree with Russell Green, the most serious challenge to that is the exclusion of African-Americans corrected by uh, uh, some later amendments and the uh, alternative of living constitutionalism, which even with a, a constitution that's imperfect, I think is not the best way of interpreting it, if one decides that originalism is the way to interpret the Constitution, one has to go back and understand how the Constitution was interpreted uh, at, at the original Constitution of 1789, how they were expected it to be interpreted, and then how the Constitution of uh, other amendments were expected to be interpreted. And there, my argument would be that they uh, thought that formal materials were the way to interpret the Constitution. and that's a historical uh, debate. Uh, I think uh, there is some evidence for that. Uh, uh, James Madison, uh, often thought to be the father of the Constitution, says the understanding of the people. that's the only legi- uh, at the time the Constitution enactment, that's the only way uh, the only legitimate uh, way the Constitution should proceed. But that's the debate. That, I think, is the structure of the debate. Should we be originalists now? And that depends on some normative political theory. And once we decide we should be uh, originalists, the question is, what are the the methods of interpretation at the the time of enactment? And I think they are broadly originalist. Obviously, in a panel like this, I can't set out the evidence for that. I think the second point is pretty strong. Even liberal scholars like uh, Howard Gilman and uh, Laura Kelman have suggested uh, that um, throughout uh, the 19th century, even when there were disagreements, sharp disagreements, about uh, how cases should come out, no one really argued for living constitutionalism. People had varieties and often they didn't follow what they said they should do they had varieties of arguments that, uh, to be originalists. So I think there was an originalist consensus that you could understand the uh, Constitution. And there were deeply political questions. They may not have been rights questions. But they were questions of should the federal government or should the state government uh, have authority, which were deeply political questions that could be resolved by the materials of the Constitution at that time. And it was only in the progressive era when a whole new view of uh, the Constitution developed, uh, kind of along the ideas of Darwin, that we needed an evolutionary view of the Constitution, that we had a, a, a strong intellectual alternative to that. Professor Green? Uh, so uh,
1: two questions. So one is, uh, is, is humility to be expected when fighting about moral issues? Uh, And uh, no, I don't think it's to be expected. Uh, I think it's to be cultivated. It requires intentionality um, to it. Um, And I think that's important, again, as a general virtue um, uh, in our political discourse. Uh, But I don't think it's necessarily um, uh, a question of, of, of ethics or role morality when we're talking about ordinary people, lay people, engaging in political discourse. And we're talking about lawyers. Um, It becomes essential, um, and it becomes essential in constitutional law, in particular, insofar as um, when we we engage in discussions about rights, uh, who has a right to what? Right. These are really kind of uh, existential questions uh, for people, Uh, and uh, an attitude uh, towards those kinds of questions that suggests that there's just kind of a single right answer, and you just lose. The constitution doesn't care about you. Um, or your claims um, is, I think, a highly socially destructive um, uh, posture towards the Constitution. So lawyers, I think, have a different um, kind of role. And again, it's not something that comes naturally necessarily, but something that requires cultivation and intentionality. Uh, uh, Does selection of clients uh, call for humility as well? Uh, I think yes. Um, So I think the general thrust of, uh, of, uh, of what Ashley Keller talked about is something I've Completely agree with, um, which is to say that um, lawyers should be trained to understand that their job is to represent vigorously the interests of their clients um, and not to um, replace their clients or try to replace their ends with the the ends of their clients. I think that's an absolutely essential part of lawyering. Uh, Like anything else, I do think there are limits to that, um, in the sense that so limits to the um, to the view that you know one should be indifferent to the ends of one's clients. I don't think lawyers necessarily should be, um, but, uh, but, but again, the general spirit, I think, is quite right.
0: Thank you. Uh, we have a couple of minutes, so if we can keep our questions short.
8: Mike Wallace from Mississippi. I wanted to ask Mr. Keller to go back to his comparison of the 20-lawyer boutique practice to the 1,000-lawyer practice. Heard a speech from a federal judge this week who was the 19th lawyer at Wilmer Cutler in Pickering. 20 lawyers used to be a big offer thousand lawyer law firms didn't used to exist. We let, used to be impossible to practice over state lines. When I started, you couldn't practice in corporate form. and if you don't have limited liability, the last thing you need is a thousand law partners. But if you've got a thousand law partners, isn't it inevitable that they're going to tend toward the safe uniformity you' all have been discussing? And if it's not inevitable, good reactionary that I am, Is there anything we can do to go back to what we had? Yeah, Uh, great question. It's obviously not inevitable, because
4: until 20 minutes ago, it was happening that these 1,000-person law firms were representing various clients that had discordant political agendas. Paul Clement was successfully practicing at Kirkland-Ellis, representing gun manufacturers. So um, it was completely doable for these 1,000 lawyer firms to take on different sorts of clients with different interests that you know, maybe rubbed a lot of partners the wrong way, but because of the broader legal culture that had been cultivated for a long time, it was tolerated, and now that is increasingly not possible. So um, I do think that it was something that was doable. Uh, what can we do to get back to it? You, know, you, you heard my best stab at it, which is courage. Uh, people within these firms need to stand up for the culture that we want to have as a profession. Uh, Or we need people who think like us, you know, fellow reactionaries, uh, to vote with our feeds. Uh, And if we can't obtain that culture at, you know, an AmLaw 10 firm, you can still earn a great living and enjoy the practice of law working someplace else and going to the sort of place that used to predominate our legal culture, uh, as you said, not that long ago. So uh, you don't need all the trappings of a you know, extra paralegal and word processing department or whatever that these big firms can provide. And you know, the artwork in these A plus buildings is not that nice, you can, you, you, can, you can do fine at a boutique.
0: Let's go on this side
9: sure uh greg Tufel from the uh pittsburgh chapter uh i just had a quick question mostly uh for uh professor green regarding uh your you made some comments uh about the fact that the con- you know uncomfortable facts about the constitution that it was originally you know although it proclaimed to be we the people there was a limited uh exclusive set of people who actually drafted and ratified it back in you know 1787 and 88 but Um, I wonder does, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure the point you're trying to make in bringing out those uncomfortable truths if it's to undermine the sort of the centrality, legitimacy or authority or whether the we the people comment is is true today, but I wonder if doesn't, doesn't the history since the Constitution, sort of the concept of ratification, even if only a small subset of the people actually originally ratified the Constitution, didn't the, the couple hundred years of people migrating to the com- country, choosing to stay in the country, fighting in the military, swearing oaths to support and defend the Constitution, choosing to vote in elections, choosing to pay taxes, those kinds of things. don't. Doesn't that constitute ratification of the Constitution by we the people, by all races, creeds, religions, and, and doesn't that? grant, if it didn't have it on day one, the Constitution, the centrality, uh, legitimacy, and authority uh, to take the role it has taken in our cases that are being litigated in the courts?
1: Great. So the, so I, I take the, the question to be, uh, is, does, a, does a kind of acquiescence, maybe even a kind of active acquiescence over time by diverse populations invest the Constitution with legitimacy and authority? I think that's one kind of claim that one can make about why the Constitution has the status that it does. right? So when I said the um, uh, understanding the Constitution as an act of popular sovereignty is something that has to be actually argued um, rather than simply assumed, um, that's the kind of argument that one might make. Now, if one makes that argument, it then begs the question of uh, what is the thing that those populations understand to be the Constitution? What is the thing that those populations understand themselves to have committed to? Uh, and that is a very difficult question to answer, because those people did not write down what they were committing to, what they understood the Constitution to mean. And so when we, when we talk about something like living constitutionalism, um, it need not necessarily be understood as, we're going to look at these words and sort of pretend that they mean something um, else or have changed over time, um, it's to say, the American, we, we, we're trying to identify the commitments of the American people as constituted today. Uh, and that might be uh, an, a, something that we can identify as originalism, but it isn't necessarily um, something that we can identify as originalism. That has to be argued. It has to be defended. Um, so, so yes, that's a, uh, I, you know, I, this is not a claim that the, we're not bound by the Constitution or it doesn't. Or it isn't law, or something like that. It's to say, when we think about what makes it, what what, what it actually means, um, uh, it, it it begs the question to say it means what it originally meant. Um, and so that's the that's the that's the point.
0: I think we have time for these last two questions. Go ahead. All right, thank you,
8: um, Joe Cosby, attorney in uh, Washington D.C. Thank you very much for Professor Green. Um, thank you for your comments and everything. I wanted to focus on your response. Uh, to Mr. Keller about Paul Clement, he said, well, uh, his clients did get represented, and you know, and they won, and they got great representation. But then wasn't the point of making it uh, an issue for him as to whether or not he could even remain at the firm that he was at exactly that problem to discourage Mr. Clement and anyone else who saw how Mr. Clement was being treated from providing exactly that kind of representation in the future. And whether it's intended or not, doesn't that result in a much more brittle, much more narrow legal culture that runs a serious risk of becoming so narrow and so brittle that serious errors and uh, and intolerance become the the consequence in the future? uh, so uh, I, I was not nece- trying
1: to defend uh, Kirkland and Ellis, <laughs> um, uh, or to suggest that their behavior in this in this particular case um, is um, laudable or, or defensible. I don't have any. I mean, uh, the facts as I know them uh, bother me and concern me in the way that it, that they do others. Um, uh, the point the point I was making is simply to say that if we're trying to sort of understand the nature of the problem more generally, right? So is this an instance of um, of something sinister um, that goes deeper than this particular case, then one of the things we might wish to know is are there clients who, because of the unpopularity of their cause, are, are you know, unable to get quality legal representation? Uh, and um, this is not, to me, an instance of that happening. Um, it may be that I, there, there may be, there may be maybe other facts that um, that suggest that it is, right? So I'm totally open to that possibility. Um, so, it was really more of a question of you know, what are the kinds of things that should alarm us? Uh, and uh, I don't have a good sense of whether this is a, 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 an example of a larger phenomenon uh, that um, should worry us or is just an example of, uh, of a firm um, uh, maybe behaving badly.
10: Go uh, ahead. Thank you. Uh, Judge John Curry from Chicago. Um, regarding student culture that was referred to earlier. um, I've had these two reports, you can label them fake news if in fact they are. One was from Harvard Law School, the other from the University of Chicago Law School. Students who returned from their summer internships who had worked for prosecutorial offices were subject to a sort of Maoist public shaming from their fellow students for even thinking of working for prosecutors. So it's to the three law professors here on, on the panel. Uh, isn't it your charge to correct that kind of thinking and make it quite clear that within America, the legal profession has diversity and we need that diversity to cover important. I mean, we need prosecutors to prosecute criminal law. Many of them go on to become fine criminal defense lawyers after their time with uh, uh, with prosecutors. So. Uh, Does this kind of uh, culture disturb you, this rising up from the students who may eventually one day become more Kirkland Ellises and shaming clients or partners to avoid certain representations? Thank you.
3: So I think, um, assuming that that story um, exists, and I've heard some interesting stories across across law schools, uh, that would be an example of effective polarization, right, an assumption that If you did this thing um, and are part of this group, then you must believe X, Y, and Z, and those are bad things. Um, And it's also a surprise, because we also have a a real rise in progressive prosecutors nationwide. Um, Going into a prosecutor's office today is nothing like it would have been for me to go into a prosecutor's office um, when I graduated a while ago. so I, I think when I talk about we as lawyers uh, in the legal profession need to, to treat each other with good faith, um, I'm talking about law professors and law students as well. Um, I I think I will, I will say I think the pandemic did not help with this to the extent school was conducted online. Um, I think that students did not have, students at schools that were online did not have as much of an opportunity to see each other as human beings, as people with ideas and values um, who might disagree with you on a really hot button topic, but you can go play basketball with them after, after class. Our students did not have that experience at many schools for a year, a year and a half, um, and I think that hurt legal education. Um, I'm hoping going forward we will not have that same issue, um, but I think that as we go, go into our silos, and only, say, go to federalist society conventions or only go to American Constitution society conventions, only talk to those with whom we agree, this kind of thinking will continue. I think it is crucially important for people who strongly disagree to talk to each other and try to understand the grounds upon which they strongly disagree. Um, I think it's crucially important that we admit when we have views that are inconsistent with those around us, and I think it's really hard to do. But to the extent we can create that environment in the classroom, which I try very hard to do, I try to make my classroom open to everyone, regardless of their perspective or their background or their ideology. But I think we have to make a commitment, and this goes back to Professor Green's point on, on humility, being humble about your own views makes you much more open to respect those of others.
2: So uh, I agree with everything that Professor Greve said. I do think it is a problem in the legal academy. And let's go back to the ideological uniformity. is structurally a problem. It's harder to have that humility uh, when you're in uh, uh, a bubble of people who almost entirely share uh, a certain number of views. And they're less likely, uh, uh, students are less likely to get pushback uh, in that world. Um, that, I think, is a substantial problem in the modern legal economy. And uh, in my view, it's getting worse, uh, not better. Uh, there is a, a decline, I think, uh, in the sense of uh, uh, the heterogeneity of, of, of views and, the at least at my law school, the ability of people on all sides to be hired. i very concerned about that. I've heard concerns about that at other schools. And uh, that's going to create an atmosphere in which uh, I think this is a problem of students as well. I think it's actually a pretty small minority of students, but they have a kind of passionate conviction. And unless the institution uh, uh, represents the importance of ideological diversity and openness, and the best way they can do that, of course, is to have uh, an ideologically diverse and open uh, faculty who debate uh, strongly among themselves uh, right across uh, both the ideological spectrum and the spectrum of jurisprudential views, Uh, the students are not going to get the right message. And that is a serious problem in the legal academy today, uh, which, alas, I see no evidence that anyone in the power in the legal academy has any interest in correcting. OK. We're out of
0: time. So if you want to, 20 seconds each to wrap up, go ahead.
1: Oh, I'll just, 20 sec- I'll just use my 20 seconds on this, on this issue, which is I agree that it's a, it's a problem. It's a serious problem. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll note that when people become judges or, or, or nominated for judgeships after being public defenders, publicly shaming them for who their clients are is also really bad and, um, and the flip side of, of this. So um, I think it's bad on both sides. Uh, uh, and, uh, and as to law schools, uh, uh, I, you know, I, don't, I do think it's a small number of people, um, I, at least in my experience. I, most, most students are, I find, actually quite, um, quite open, quite receptive to a wide range of, of views. That's just been my experience, and uh, I hope it's true at other schools as well. Okay,
4: we'll
0: give the last word to Mr. Keller.
4: I'll use 15 of my 20 seconds. I agree it's a problem. Um, I would go back to courage. Uh, It's terrible that students are trying to, in Maoist fashion, do anything. We don't want anything Maoist, but uh, shame people uh, into not going into a prosecutor's office. At the same time, I would say to students, grow a spine and push back and don't keep your mouth shut because you're afraid you're gonna get canceled. And if people engage in that sort of behavior, uh, come over the top with your own free speech and explain why they're being ridiculous and you know, contrary to pluralistic values and you're gonna keep prosecuting criminals if that's what you wanna do for a living.
0: Well, that's a great last word, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much.